Genesis chapter 1, if you want to turn there, a quick review. In the beginning, God, He existed always. He simply is. In fact, He can't not be. That is part of His nature. He is unchanging. He's omniscient and knows everything. He has always existed. He's omnipresent. These are four of the characteristics of God. If He wasn't, then we would not be. We exist because He was. What did God do in the beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made everything out of nothing. In fact, we see so far through the creation account, and we'll pick back up with this today, then God said, then God said, He spoke everything into existence out of nothing. What did He create? All of it, the heavens and the earth. All you can perceive, all that you can think of, all that you can imagine, all of it is by the handiwork of God the Father. I want, I warned you two weeks ago that depending on how you would interpret those, that first verse of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you may or may not have a hard time with this series. Some of the things I said that would be coming may not be agreeable to your palate that I am speaking. I have made, for those that were not here last week or failed to grab one, a sheet of nine or ten of the most prominent views on how the world became. On one side of the paper is a scientific um, sort of theories of how people believe the world became. On the flip side are four different exegetical approaches. I do not believe that they are all necessarily as good as the other, um, but that sheet is in the foyer. If you've not picked one up, I encourage you to grab one. It goes through, it will help you. I know a lot of the terminology that I'm talking about is deep. You're thinking, so what? Why does this even matter? Hopefully from these three weeks, but in particular today, it will come out a little bit more strongly what I believe and why I believe all of this does matter. Pick one of those up and read through them. It will help you in looking back at these sermons if you are confused or have issues. Again, as always, please come see me. I'm happy to talk through this. This is something that I'm passionate about. I know Mady and Louie are passionate about. Um, they'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Day one, we looked, and this is still in the vein of review. God separated light from darkness. You may remember me mentioning the gap theory, which had this picture of the three different earths, and there are people that believe that there are some extra earths or worlds that were created and stuck between verses 1 and 2, and respectively between verses 2 and 3. These are the extra worlds. That the description here is simply describing the most recent wor world. That is the gap theory. Uh, day 2, we looked at the God separating the waters from below from the waters above, which is now what we call as space. We think of the earth and we think of the heavens or space or maybe even the universe. Day two, that's what he created. Day three, he gathered together those waters into one place and created land. We talked about the potential of Pangaea, one big continent. He also, vegetation sprung forth and those plants that would be able to yield fruit and seeds. All of this was seen on day three. We looked at the particularly common theory of the day age or the age day theory which posits that basically each day in this account represents long periods of time. 
they go to this by a Hebrew word, yom, which is the word in this passage. And they argue, some scholars try and argue that that also can mean day or periods of time, which is true. We went through that. And again, if you were not here in all of this, I know I'm going fast. Go back and listen to that last week's sermon. There's also a piece of paper where I talk through some of these things and try not to sway you in any way other than just to give you the word of God. You make your own decisions based on scripture. I'm doing, trying my best to do that. I have my opinions. I have my bias. I wanted to teach through all of this as fairly as I could from a biblical standpoint, not a scientific. I don't care what science says. My job as a pastor, as a teacher of the word, is to teach from the word. So I'm going to posit that to you. I'm going to tell you what I believe at the end. And again, that little sheet of paper will help you go through some of those things and thinking through them. Genesis chapter 1. This morning we pick back up on day 4. After we did one verse the first week, I know some of you were probably thinking, wow, he did days 1, 2, and 3 all in one sermon? That's right, I did. 12 verses in one week, that's like a record, I think. You just str- buckle up, you wait till you see what we do today. Verse 14. Then God said, Notice, speaking. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. A day. A fourth day. Let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. Notice here that Moses, the author, is using different words for seasons and years Again, I think this bolsters the idea that the author is trying to communicate that a day should be day. If he wanted to use seasons or years, could very well have done that in Hebrew, but he did not. God made these two great lights, one to govern the day, the lesser to govern the night. He made the stars also. The sun and moon, notice here, are not mentioned directly by name. Now, I think we all understand that that is what is being created here the greater and the lesser, the sun and the moon, and the stars also. One commentary uh, that I read posits that this leaves no room to superstition and worship of other those things. Now, back in ancient times, it was very common, even in Egyptian world. Ra was the sun god. They had moon gods. and all sorts. So th- what we're seeing in this account is Yahweh God, creator of heavens and earth. There's the lesser light and the greater light. Those shouldn't even be mentioned in the context of things that are worshipable. Another commentary suggested that um, this is, or or points out, I should say, that nothing is directly mentioned by name until chapter 2 of the creation account. And so this is just following along the same lines as vegetation. They don't specifically mention trees. Just thought I'd point those things out to you. Regardless, here are the two purposes for light according to Scripture. Number one, to divide between day and night. Again, here we come back to this whole daylight savings thing. 
we know what time of day it is based on the sun. In fact, before we had these clocks, and I, Steve, I think Steve took my clock. That's funny. <laughs> I still got one, Steve, so ha! Um, before we had digital clocks or watches, which is really quite an amazing piece of technology, they used sundials, and they could measure the shadow and tell you approximately what time of day it was based on the sun's location. Now, it works a whole lot better at the equator than it does in the extremities of the, the earth based on the position of the sun. Do you know that many, here's a fun fact for you, which has nothing to do with my message, that the Egyptians, some 4,000 plus years ago, knew the earth was round because they had made an obelisk in two different parts of Egypt, one up north and one down south, and there was a certain day of the year when the sun would be directly over top, and they marked it on their calendars, and they would keep track and understand that there was no shadow cast, which means the sun is directly ahead. They were able to measure in the southern part of Europe the shadow that was cast by this obelisk, this like Washington Monument, if you're not familiar with what an obelisk is, a big pointy statue. They measured the shadow and understood that that can only happen when you curve the earth. And yet, here we are today still debating whether or not the earth is flat. Okay, fun fact aside, yes. 4,000 years ago without calculators or airplanes, and somehow they managed to figure it out. Shadows are important. Guess what? God created them. These lights to help us dictate the day. Why are days so important to God? Hmm. We're going to get there. Why is it that he wants to separate day from night? Why couldn't God just create us to not have to sleep? Why couldn't we live on Tatooine and have three different suns? Could not have God made us that way? Do you ever think about the small things? Why? Why did he make a night? Why did he make us to rest? Hmm. He also made the lights to determine periods of time and days and months and years and seasons for many, many years. We know this for thousands of years. People have been using the stars to navigate and to track calendars. Amazing. I don't know whoever looked at the, the heavens. And I'm not talking in the middle of Blacksburg or in the middle of a city and you look up and you see, oh, there's a North Star and you can kind of make out a few. You go and think back before there were lights and you go look out in the night and they were able to track out of all of these millions and millions, which we now know are galaxies, really, most of them. And they were able to track and pinpoint these different shapes and keep track of how they move through the sky. That's the most overwhelming thing that I can imagine. Yet, they did this. And they did this to track and figured out with an amazing, a remarkable degree of accuracy how many days are approximately in one solar year. God created that for a reason. Why didn't he put the earth on a larger path? He could have. He made a year. The year. He also made lights to give light upon the earth, as we know, to no doubt provide for growth and warmth in the health of all the living organisms. Everything that's alive, for the most part, needs light. And we derive our well-being from it. And everyone said, Amen, I do love the sun. God placed these lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. Now, not to make too much of this phrasing, but it appears that the work of God on this day is twofold. First, he made the sun and the moon and the stars. Secondly, he placed them. Two actions going on. There's this sort of this picture of him creating things from a substance or speaking them out. 
and then he placed them in their locations. They did not just appear. That's the, the if you really get down to the nitty-gritty, again, don't make too much of it. Don't build a doctrine around it. Just look at the word. Every word is useful for teaching. Day five, let's move along. Genesis chapter one, verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Let the waters teem or swarm swarms. Yours may say something along the lines of bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that have life. Understand the full meaning of the original. Is We're not reading about a few fish or a few birds. We're talking about an overabundance. Swarms of swarms. Teeming with swarms. Abundance of swarms. Isn't that how God the Father gives life? Life in abundance? We see he created the earth and populated it in a remarkable way. The same of the fish, the swimming creatures of the sea, the flying creatures of the sky. Now, your translations may say Bible, but really what is implied here is that this is all winged creatures. The insects, etc. Everything that has wings and can fly were more than likely created on this fifth day. Day six, 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. On day six, God makes all the remaining animals of the earth Creatures, beasts with legs, the slithering things, the things that walk kind of funny, worms. Let the earth bring forth. Much like vegetation, animals came forth from the earth. I emphasize this so that we can hopefully see that it is only, God, only man which God seems to create in a special manner. And it's these subtleties in Scripture that we may not often think about that are important for us when it comes to issues of racism. And did you come from monkeys and evolution and all of these types of matters that have crept into the church? There is much more that we can say about these verses while exegeting the original. I'm going fast. The Hebrew words, behemah, remes, sheheat. God is creating the mute-legged animals. The, the cattle there is really, it's the dumb animals is what, it, is what it's speaking of. The animals that obey, they eat grass. The creeping things like worms is the other word. And then the last word is the carnivorous beasts. Now, we don't think of them as carnivorous because they are not yet, but this is the Hebrew word that is used and will be describing a separate category of beast. Every word of God is breathed by the Holy Spirit and is useful for teaching. I'm going fast, but let us move on. We've arrived at the climax of the sixth day, the creation of man. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man 
in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let us make. Who is us if there was no other? I've always interpreted this as a foreshadowing of the Trinity, and I referenced this two weeks ago. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit were, throughout the Bible, credited with the creative works in the beginning. But we only know this because we possess the New Testament and we look backwards. For that reason, we should be reminded to consider how the readers of this passage were to make sense of the us back in their day. Now, I'm not attacking that you see Trinity here. I certainly do. Nor am I remotely suggesting that all three members were not intimately involved with the creation of the universe. But I would like us to be objective and open to an explanation of what this us may be there for to begin with. Why did Moses choose this word? Was it just for the people of the future, 2,000 years later, to be able to piece it all together? What would the Jews even make of this? What would they even think of this? Dr. Michael Heiser, in his book, The Unseen Realm, explains that God was not creating with others. He said he's alone the creator, but perhaps he's inviting the angelic hosts to go down and see the earth with him. And he gets this from a number of passages, which we're going to read three other places. We see this us used in plural form. And he says that each one of these, in his opinion, are talking about angels. I want us just to quickly read those. Genesis chapter 3, you're close enough, you can just turn there. Genesis 3, 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, this is after eating of the forbidden fruit, like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he talks about coming down. There's cherubim that are stationed there. Genesis eleven seven. This is the Tower of Babel. He says, come, let us go down. Let us confuse their language so that they will not understand each other's speech. Isaiah 6, 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Who will go for us? While it's true that the us could be referring to the plurality of a single Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Another theory is that Moses, at least at the time of writing, was referring to communication between Yahweh and some sort of angelic host or council. Take it or leave it. I'm just throwing it out there. It is an exegetical interpretation. There it is. Let us make what? Man. 
Man is the Hebrew word Adam, Adam. It is not, in this case, talking about the name Adam as a proper name. Let us make mankind in our image. This is in a general sense. Notice the term is plural in the sentence that is following. Let them rule over the fish and over everything. Go be fruitful and multiply. Them is talking about a a plurality here. So this is not talking about Adam quite yet. We will get there in chapter 2 of Genesis. Adam is also the general word for mankind. Let us make mankind in our image. Let them rule. They would be made in our image according to our likeness. Now this phrase here that we have in verse 26, you could spend sermons, weeks upon weeks probably, trying to delve into it. In God's image, in His likeness. To me personally, the picture of the Trinity seems most likely for let us because of these phrases. Our image, our likeness. If God was speaking to the angelic hosts, are we to believe that we are made in the likeness and image of angels? Certainly not. Genesis 5.1, if you're still in Genesis, you can flip there. I'm just going to read it. It says, actually, I think we have a slide for it. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Not in the likeness of angels. Genesis 9, 6 also says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. In the image of God. Singularly, in God's image, in the likeness of God. We are not made in the likeness, in the image of angels. Now, some try to get around that through some sort of mental gymnastics, but I think it's much easier just to read it as it says, We are made in the image of God and God alone. And God was talking to himself, let us go down. In the image of God, according to his likeness. What then does it mean? The words in Hebrew are Salem, Demuth, respectively. Image, likeness. And they have been debated for centuries like many things. What do they refer to? An earlier historian says, well, one is, I couldn't even fully understand. I was reading this, and I I still don't understand exactly what he's talking about. But one is like the shadow of an outline, and the other is the the thing that fills that. So they were saying, well, the image of of man is is like the the outside appearance of him, and then the likeness is the internal organs, is what they were believing. Another one said, this is like the beauty in the soul, respectively. One said, this is like the intelligence and the virtues, respectively. One person I found interesting said that this is a reference to the pre-fall and the other to the post-fall, what man might become. And while there's no definitive answer to what these two words are referring to, I want to offer a few points for us to consider in a biblical vein rather than just mere speculation. What is clear in this passage is that man alone is created in the image of of God in his likeness, and no other creation was. We're not told that angels were. No beast of the earth, no creepy crawly, no fish, no bird, no vegetable, no tree. Nothing else was made in the image or likeness of God, man alone. 
So Moses' writings about something that's unique to mankind. Number two, this is probably not a reference to our bodies in any way, shape, or form. Oh, is this what God looks like? No. We're told in John 4.24 that God is spirit. And in fact, Jesus came down to earth, the, the word became flesh, John 1.14, to appear like us, to relate to us, not the other way around. God didn't say, oh, I'm going to create them to look like me. Jesus came down as a human incarnate to relate to us. So I don't believe that this is a reference to our bodies. I also don't believe that this is some disembodied soul or thing like that, because in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, we, we see these souls that are separated from the bodies and they're still able to honor God and they don't lose this part of the image of God just because you're separated from your body. And so I would argue that the image and likeness is not our experience, it's not our bodies, it's not even our souls, our mind, our emotions, our will, nor is it our function, as some people would argue. Oh, it's because God created you to do certain things. Perhaps the best indication that we can gather what the image and likeness of God is is simply found in the New Testament. I have a slide. Ephesians 4.24 says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Secondly is this, Colossians 3.1 says, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed through a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What is the image and likeness of God? I would posit that it's probably something along the lines of righteousness, true knowledge and intimacy with him, that we can have fellowship with him. And this is the act which we spiritually must do, is putting that back on each and every day until one day we will be glorified. We see dimly now, but don't you long for the day we get to behold him face to face. We're being exchanged from glory to glory. Jesus Christ, the very image, the exact representation of Yahweh God, the more we become like him, the more we put Christ on, the more we renew our minds in Christ, we begin putting on his righteousness. We begin putting his holiness back on, that new self to be back into that true knowledge, that right relationship, right standing with him. This is what I believe it means to be in the likeness and image of God. There's a whole sermon there, I promise you. Don't you doubt me. I'll show you. I'll bore you. <laughs> I can do it. Let them, again, them, 26, rule. This is mankind, plurality. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, plural. How did God create him? Male and female. Full stop. There's not 24 more that God left out that Moses forgot. Uh, how many does Facebook have? Is it 26? Or is, there, is it a spectrum now? I forget. It's more than that? They've added? Okay. It used to be 26. Male and female. Two. How did God create them? Two, distinct, male, female. You're one or you're the other. How many genders? Male and female. God wonderfully and immutably 
creates each person as male or female. And these two distinct complementary genders together reflect the image and the nature of God. God blessed man and he gives him instructions. Be fruitful, number one. Number two, multiply. Number three, fill the earth. And four, subdue it. And this is a strong word denoting subjugating power. Subdue, rule over everything. Become the master of everything in the earth. And God said, Behold, verse 29, Behold. This is a bizarre word that should grab our attention. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Behold, I've given you plants. Why? Behold, it always precedes a command or a strong statement. Every plant. Notice this. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed, and every tree yielding seed, every beast, every bird, every thing that moves. I have given every green plant for food. I don't know why it's worded so strongly, but in Hebrew it clearly is. Behold, grab your attention, every, every, every. Everything was made vegetarian at first. I don't care what you believe. If you're reading the Bible for what it says, it is absolutely clear there is no room for debate. God created the earth without carnivores initially when he had finished his work. And in fact, we don't even see the instruction to eat. It wasn't just after the fall of man like you might expect. It wasn't until after Noah and the ark that God says, go out and you may now eat. So there, was, there could be a period of time. We don't exactly understand, or we're not sure in Scripture alone what they ate there. I've got my speculations that after the fall of man, we probably started to, but I have no Scripture to go on that. Several Jewish commentators even, they've observed that a vegetarian diet will be reinstated as a diet of creation during the Messianic age, a time when God is reverting things back to an Edenic state, meaning things will go back, the lion and the lamb will be, lay back down together. There's a picture of this throughout Scripture that we can see, that, that this is how God created it very good, day six. Very good. It was perfect. Everything was created the way that it should be. Every plant for every moving and living thing. And God saw that everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. That concludes day six. Now, there is one concept that I have purposefully skipped over last week and this morning, and it's found three different places that work together. It's on the basis of these phrases, which are a foundation for a theory of creation that is gaining in popularity. While this belief arguably is, I guess I'll say technically, an exegetical, meaning it comes from Scripture, the first proponent of it admits he only developed it because there are apparent contradictions in science and the Word of God. Okay? 
In other words, this theory attempts to resolve the Bible and science in a biblical way, but does so only because science has forced its hand. Okay, just that as being the preface. Let's look back at verse 16 of Genesis 1. God made the two great lights and the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. Let's look at 22. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Anything stand out to you? Those three verses. Here's what the framework hypothesis states. And this again is on that paper. If you haven't picked one up, it's in the foyer. Days 4, 5, and 6, and days 1, 2, and 3 are a pair of triads. They go together. Three days. Let's see if I can do this with my fingers. Three days. Okay? We eventually will have a slide for this. You can actually throw it up now if you want, Steve. It might help you as I'm explaining this. For instance, on day one, I know that's a little bit hard to read. On day one, God created light. He separated light from darkness. What did he do on day four? God created the sun moon, and the stars. On day two, God separated what? The seas from below from the seas above. In other words, the skies and the earth is argued. What did he do on day five? Fish and the birds, seas and the skies. What did he do on day three? He gathered the waters together to form land and all the vegetation. What did he do on day six? All the creepy crawlies and beasts and and animals, and also man. And in these three verses that I pointed out as we reread, is they command to be fruitful and multiply, or the sun, the moon, and stars is to govern, or mankind is to rule over all these things. First, be fruitful and multiply animals. Man, you be fruitful and multiply, but rule over them. The suggestion is this, that throwing out and disregarding all chronology, this is really a picture Genesis, the writer of, the, of, of Genesis, Moses, was just writing things down in a picture form to help us understand a theological argument that God was creating lights, the sun, moon, and star, to rule over the kingdom of light, the fish and the birds to rule over the skies and the sea, and the animals and ultimately man to rule over the land. And they talk about this in a theological way throughout the rest of Scripture. Again, this hypothesis suggests that the entire creation account we have before us should not be taken literally, rather literarily, like literature. God was communicating basic principles in the form of a picture. Now, while, while I certainly have my um, beliefs and bias, I'd like to share a few thoughts about this. And this is growing in popularity very quick because it gives people the flexibility to believe the earth is however old they want it to be, okay? Because it's not really concerned about days or structure or order of any of it. It's just picture. Many, many of the other interpretive issues that I have, I've spoken in regards to the gap theory and the day-age day theory, and I know this is getting into some of the technical stuff. Please don't check out. I'm telling you this will be important. They also apply here, namely this. What does it say about communication if everything is metaphor? 
The problem is, if the meaning of Genesis 1 can be written off and the language treated as a picture or nothing more than a literary device, where does the metaphor stop and end? Is Genesis 3 also metaphor? After the flood, should we transition to history after the Tower of Babel? Or perhaps the Promised Land? Perhaps Egypt? Why? Why would we stop there? Why not regard all of the biblical miracles? We can throw out Jonah as also metaphor, which I've heard questioned in this church. Where do we sort of understand that there are literary devices? And, and how do we know which is metaphor, just because it's hard to process? Is then the virgin birth, as I've referenced last week? What about the resurrection of Lazarus and Jesus? What is history and what is metaphor? What about Romans 5, 12? Now, on top of all that, Put yourself in Moses' perspective, because I think it's a little dangerous to think of yourself as God, but in that perspective, that framework back then, why would even God have mentioned six days if this is just a picture? See, because the, the framework hypothesis, as I said, has to reject the chronology of the creation account. For, the, for this metaphor to work. You see, for instance, in day four, it speaks of God placing the light bearers in the firmament, and yet that firmament wasn't even created until day two. So there was an issue here. They're putting the, the sun up, and it basically just has to throw it all out. It was all created at the same time. None of it matters. These days are here just to help us kind of dissect things and understand where things go in these different kingdoms. So it's not even, it's not even worried about the order. That said, if you were communicating to your people what they needed to know, the essentials about creation, what would you leave out and what would you put in there? Why add all of this? Why say on day one, a morning and an evening? Day two, a morning and an evening. Day three, a morning and an evening. Day four, a morning and an evening. Day five, a morning and an evening. Day six, a morning and an evening. Why go out of your way to do any of that? Why couldn't you just say, God created this to rule over that and this to rule over that? If we take out the chronology of the first chapter of Genesis, what even do we have left? I mean, the fourth commandment doesn't even make sense, apart from understanding that the days of God's creative work parallel a Norman, normal human week. On six days, he worked. On the seventh, he rested. And the simple yet obvious fact, and uncomfortable for some, depending on where you are, is that no one would ever think this, the time frame for creation was anything other than seven days if you just read the Bible and the Bible alone. The framework hypothesis, I would argue, is the direct result of making modern scientific theory a hermeneutical guideline by which we interpret Scripture study of scriptures. It's allowing science to bleed into it. And it boils down to this for me. Does science speak with more authority than the Word of God? In my humble opinion, those who embrace the framework hypothesis have in effect made science an authority over scripture. There is no warrant for that. 
Modern scientific opinion is not a valid hermeneutic for interpreting Genesis. Whether it backs up the Bible or not, there are things that scientists believe and have found that support the Bible, but that in and of itself is not a good way to interpret Scripture. We must interpret Scripture by Scripture, not by what science says, whether it's convenient or not. Scripture is God breathes, 2 Timothy 1, 2.16. It's inspired from by God. Jesus summed up this point perfectly in his prayer. He said, thy word is truth. The Bible is the supreme truth, and therefore it's the standard by which scientific theory should be evaluated, not vice versa. And I, I'm comfortable saying that. I'm comfortable being the crazy young guy who says, you believe that the earth is young, against popular opinion, against all science. Yeah, I would, I would go as far in saying, you know what, if the science doesn't match what I see clearly God has given to me, then I think that science ain't science. It's bad. It's, it's made up. I'm comfortable with that. Again, I told you some things would be uncomfortable for you. And while I'm at it, Don't mind me while I stress that this is not a minor matter of only the first chapter in Genesis. Here's the crux of what each of us must decide. Does Genesis mean what it it says and clearly intends to convey? Or does it mean something that it does not say? Where do we draw that line? I told you two weeks ago that I would give you my thoughts, and I again echoed that sentiment this morning that I would tell you what I believe, and you've probably very clearly picked up on what it is. Here are brief, four brief arguments why I believe in a literal six-day, 24-hour creation period. Firstly, textual. God himself was the creator. So unsurprisingly, he knows not only what he did, but also how he did it. God is also omniscient, so he knows how to correctly convey the information to all those that he wishes to inform, not just those from thousands of years ago, but to us today. He knows how to articulate it in a way. For thousands of years, Christians, including great scientists, such as Isaac Newton, who was perhaps one of the greatest scientists that also believed the Word of God, They believed that the the account of Genesis ought to be taken literally. It is really only until the last couple of hundred years that other considerations have gained so much traction and taken over within the church. A theological argument. If death was around before God handed out the punishment to Adam for his disobedience, then death cannot be the penalty for sin as the Apostle Paul held in Romans 5.12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, in death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What does that mean for the atonement of the last Adam? For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. What does it mean? For us, theologically, if death was here for thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions or even billions of years before God's Word says that it came as a result of 
Adam's disobedience. The death penalty for our sins helps to open the minds of non-believers to see themselves as sinners and to bring them to a realization of their guilt before God and that they are in need of a Savior. A historical argument. Do you know that every New Testament author, every author in the New Testament, quotes or alludes to the book of Genesis. 103 times. 60 of which are referenced to just the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And these same 11 chapters have 64 geographical locations, 88 personal names, and even named cities. They talk about specific cultural things, instruments and tools. Clearly, these chapters are just as historical as the remaining 39 of the book of Genesis. Why is it that only the first 11 would be metaphor, and then the rest would be taken as a literal historical narrative? The truth is, both the Old and the New Testaments, the authors of such, treat the people, the events of Genesis, in their order, chronologically, and time frames as real history, never merely as literary or theological devices. A practical argument. If the plain text of Genesis doesn't mean what it says, how can it be claimed that other portions of Scripture, including the New Testament gospel, actually mean what they say? And how can and would you ever explain the inconsistency of that very question to somebody who was asking? Apologetics is being able to make a reasonable argument about what you believe. While this may not seem important to each of you, I assure you that there are people out there that need these answers. And these answers, if you are in Christ Jesus, come from His Word. They not only best come from His Word, but they only come from His Word. It is absolute truth. Just because you may not have taken the time to think through all of this or it's not interesting to you does not mean that you should not take time to go through it and understand and know what you believe and why does it make sense and why this belief doesn't make sense because we should be able to give an account to anybody who asks for the hope that lies within and do so in a way that makes sense and is convincing. Not that you can convince anybody. They have to choose God freely. I hope it's clear that this is not some minor issue of a differing interpretations of a few chapters of God's Word. Well, yes, believe in Jesus Christ, confess your sins, that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Great. But now you know. I've deposited enough information to you that you now are responsible as a believer in Christ to think through these things, to make them work in congruency with the rest of Scripture. This is not just an interpretive issue of a few chapters or even verses or even a single book. Rather, it concerns the total credibility and authority of the entirety of God's Word. Let us consider just how important this first chapter is as it relates to the rest of the Bible, including the commands of Jesus. Day 7, very quickly, Genesis 2, 
1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. O church, Exodus chapter 20, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 